pleasure to come home. Today I'll be preaching out of Acts chapter 21, which uh, I think Bill was on 20 last week, right? And I, I know you had some gaps in there, but I, you've been working through it very slowly. So yeah, we've, uh, we, we've gotten there eventually. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and read the text first before we begin, and then we'll start working our way through it. So this is Acts chapter 21. When we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went abroad, aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready, not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasin from Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice with the, when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone, everywhere, against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. 
And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another, and as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. When he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him! As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian, then, who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a, city of no, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language. So before I begin working through the text, I would like to discuss the nature of the book of Acts and what we can learn from it. And so I hope that this being the 21st chapter of Acts that you've heard, this is not going to be new information, but I feel like I need to cover it since I haven't been here. <laughs> the Acts of the Apostles, or Acts as we call it for short, is an historical work written by Luke, that is the author of the same gospel. Much of Luke and Acts are direct accounts of what Luke himself experienced, and the remainder is curated from eyewitness accounts and other reliable evidence. Acts is written as a narrative and not as a technical history book, and so only certain events are highlighted, and the absence of any particular information is not to be counted as a mark against. Acts begins with an address to the reader named Theophilus. This is also who the book of whom the Gospel of Luke was addressed to. So this is a continuation of that account. And the beginning of the book of Acts explains that the narrative herein takes place after Jesus' earthly ministry. It begins with his ascension and generally follows the apostles along their journeys, starting with Peter and the other Christians in Jerusalem, and then shifting to focus on Paul and his missionary journeys. And so there are several important ideas to keep in mind when interpreting Acts. So first, we should be aware that Acts is almost entirely descriptive and not prescriptive. Some works of scripture, like laws or epistles, are commands. Others, like the works of history or the Psalms, are descriptive. They describe something that is happening, but are not necessarily commands to us. So, they're similar, so Acts is similar to any other historical book in scripture in the sense that not everything that is accounted is directed to us as a command or even set out to us as an example. Obviously, many sins and wrong choices are represented in many places of Scripture that we do not necessarily follow. Additionally, we need to keep in mind that the book of Acts, like all Scripture, was written contextually, which means that it was written at a certain time, in a certain place, by a certain person, and to a certain audience. And this is, of course, true of all Scripture, but there are a few considerations specific to Acts, first being that it was written in the very earliest days of the church. And so some things happening in Acts happen only once, such as the descending of the Holy Spirit onto the Christians for the first time. Some things in Acts happen because other commands had not yet been given or understood. After all, partway through Acts, God appears to Peter and says, you may eat any kind of animal. So what happened before that? Unclear, perhaps. But it's important to keep that in mind. Some things happen as an intermediate step while the early church was still trying to figure things out. Secondly, Acts is primarily about the apostles. An apostle is qualified as someone who has seen Jesus directly and been ordained by Jesus and given power through the Holy Spirit to speak authoritatively to the early church. All of the New Testament was written by apostles. They have the ability to say, 
thus saith the Lord, somewhat like a prophet from old. However, the office of apostle no longer persists to this day, and so certain things that the apostles may have said or done are not necessarily directly applicable. And so then with all these caveats, what is the book of Acts for? If not merely some interesting stories from our own history of the church. After all, all scripture is profitable, so it must serve some purpose. And the book of Acts provides us with a number of distinct benefits. As with all scripture, there's much that we can learn about the character of God, who he is and what he's like. There's much we can learn about the character of ourselves and our own desires and shortcomings and the way that we interact with each other and God. This is true of all scripture. We can also receive encouragement from the early Christians and the early church, how they persevered through trials and how the church became triumphant and exploded throughout the globe in spite of immense persecution. This is encouraging to us as we are part of the very same church today. But the thing that I like the best about the book of Acts is that many of the characters in the book of Acts are authors of other parts of scripture, Peter, Paul, James. And so what we can see is we can look Paul commands us to do this in one of his epistles. Peter writes this in a letter to the church. Can you give me an example of what you meant by that? And with the book of Acts, we in fact can. We can see. What was Paul doing when he wrote this letter? When Paul wrote this command to the church, did he have something in mind? And we can look at the book of Acts. We can look at Paul's life. And we can understand probably what he was thinking as he wrote some of these letters to us. So with that in mind, we're going to be looking at chapter 21 as three vignettes connected by a common thread. We're not going to take these narrations to necessarily be directive for us today, but we are going to use them in conjunction with Paul's other teaching and other parts of Scripture as examples of the conduct that God expects of us. So these three stories are tied together by Paul, of course, as the main character, but thematically, each of the three stories in chapter 21 are about giving up freedom for the greater good. Each story demonstrates a degree of submission to others, to God, to church authority, to fellow believers, and even to the world. And naturally, there's a great deal of teaching elsewhere in Scripture about these themes, and so much of what we're going to do today is compare other scriptural teaching to these accounts in the book of Acts as examples. And so I used the word submission, which is, of course, one of those things that nobody really likes, but unfortunately for our sinful selves, it's part and parcel of the Christian life. I mean, the definition of the word submission kind of implies that we're not going to like it. I mean, there are a lot of commands in the Bible that people don't like. There are a lot of commands in the Bible that we do. You know, some people genuinely enjoy serving others. Some people genuinely enjoy sharing the gospel. Hopefully over time, as you become more sanctified, you come to genuinely enjoy most of God's commands. But the thing with submission is that by its definition, you're kind of only submitting when you don't want to. And so it never, it never becomes fun. And yet, nonetheless, the pattern of Scripture is to just hammer the point over and over again. Christians live a life of constant submission to God, of course, most importantly. But throughout Scripture, we're told to submit to each other. Wives are told to submit to their husbands, children to their parents, to our masters, to our governments, to our church leadership, both in command and example, we see the theme of submission, the giving up of our freedom and our agency constantly. And so Christians, although we are the freest men on earth, should be living a lifestyle of giving those freedoms up. 
And Paul, in particular, teaches a great deal in his epistles about such matters. And so this section of Acts is an opportunity to see what he means then by example. So let's look at our first vignette, starting in verse 7. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais and greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him to the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. So let's examine a few of the key interactions in this section. First, we see that Paul is fully aware of the great suffering that awaits him. Agabus is in fact a reliable prophet. He was mentioned previously in Acts chapter 11, and he prophesied accurately. In verse 4, up above, other believers have confirmed this danger to Paul, and then we, having the benefit of foresight, see that Agabus' prophecy did indeed come true. Paul was bound by the Jews and handed over to the Gentiles, just as he said. The Holy Spirit gave Agabus this ability to prophesy, and it was accurate. And yet Paul's argument is not, well, I'm still going to go because I'm not sure you're right. Paul's argument was instead, I know you're right. I know that I will suffer, and yet... I go anyway. It serves as a reminder that often obedience comes with a great cost. Christians have always been called to sacrifice for Christ in ways great or small. And we are to count the cost, deny ourselves, to humble ourselves, to reject worldly gain, and possibly even to lose our very lives. Just as Paul knows that he is coming into great suffering, great danger, and possible death, so we are to know that our lives as a Christian may include these things. And yet, we also realize, just as Paul does, that submission to God is true victory, no matter the cost, no matter the death that we die, no matter the suffering that we receive, by, in fact, obeying the Lord, we win. Paul knows this, teaches it, and lives it. Next, let us look at the interaction between Paul and the other believers. They obviously love him dearly, urging him in multiple places not to go to his own death. After all, who, loving a dear friend and brother, would wish them harm? No one, of course. And undoubtedly, they would prefer for their dear brother and friend to stay with them forever. Wouldn't we all? I mean, it's bittersweet to see church planters and missionaries and those who go with them. They leave their homes and their friends and their families and their churches and many of them never to return. So surely it's not wrong to mourn our loss, and it's also not wrong to desire them to stay. In fact, it seems like it's not even wrong to ask them to stay. I mean, a straightforward reading of this conversation here seems to indicate that the, the believers weren't just saying, hey, we'll miss you, Paul. It, it really seems like the believers in Ptolemaeus and Caesarea, and Luke is including himself by using we, they are really trying to convince Paul not to go earnestly. They know the danger and do not wish him harm. So perhaps they're saying something like, it's dangerous. Don't go. Your ministry is too important to give it up with your death. And these persuasions, are they not true? Of course. 
So then let us take this as an example of what it looks like to love one another and submit to one another. See, whether these Christians were submitting to Paul uniquely as an apostle or just merely as another brother, that submission clearly did not prevent them from disagreement. They made their opinions on the matter quite clear. It's not a sin to question others' decisions when done out of love and with respect, even those in authority over us, as Paul was over them as an apostle. It's perfectly fine to differ on matters of means or in ambiguous areas that are not clearly sinful or erroneous, and we can even strenuously disagree with our churchmates or, or even our pastors and voice our concerns freely. And yet, at the end of the day, these Christians in Ptolemaeus and Caesarea, they do not reject Paul. They don't dust off their sandals and move on to the next apostle. They don't cut his funding or leave him off on his own. They, in fact, submit to his choice. They're not even going along with them, and yet it is still an act of submission. They are free to argue. They are free to strenuously object, and yet they cease. Nonetheless, continuing to love and support him in his ministry. We see that agreement is not at all a requirement for solidarity. And in fact, especially in spite of disagreement, we are to love one another and be Christ's body together. So our attitude in these things, both in, in submission to God and to one another, is to be summed up then in the final and most important words of this narrative. Let the will of the Lord be done. This phrase obviously harkens back to both the Lord's prayer and to Jesus' passion in the Garden of Gethsemane. As in the Lord's prayer, there are many times when we have no idea what the outcome of some day-to-day -day choice will be. James reminds us that we're not even to make simple travel and business plans without acknowledging and accepting that the Lord's will takes precedence over ours. And even more so when we are certain of the outcome of a choice, particularly a negative one, such as Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he says, let the Lord's will be done, he knows what that means. Even more so in these times, we are to submit to the Lord's will. Paul knew that suffering was before him, and yet he submitted. Paul's Christian brothers and sisters knew that suffering was before him, and yet they submit. See, in John chapter 12, um, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. In Matthew 26, in the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus is drawing near to his death on the cross, he prays, Father, not as I will, but as you will. And so as Paul follows Jesus, as we follow Jesus, as we follow Paul, as Paul follows Jesus, we follow into suffering. Suffering and sadness and subjection are a part of the Christian life. The church was not created to be mighty in this age. In the age to come, when Christ returns in glory and in triumph, we will be heirs with him. But that time is not here and now. Our time is one of weakness, of defeat, of, lo of losing, and of loss. Even Jesus himself, although he carried all authority and was fully able to overcome the entire world and everything in it, he first had to submit himself and suffer for the sake of the gospel. Without Jesus' death and his suffering and his submission, there would be no means by which our sins can be paid for. 
Christ himself sets the example that to die is gain. Christ's death is gain for us. And so our deaths, be they literal or merely dying to self, are also gain. And so, for this reason, we submit to God's will, even when, and especially when, it brings suffering to us and to those we love. So let's continue to our next story. Um, it, it isn't actually clear from a quick reading, but this paragraph might take place as far as five years later from the preceding one. The journey to Jerusalem was long and slow and had a lot of hiccups and problems along the way. And so this is what I mean when I say the Acts is not written like we think of a history book. You know, when we think of a history book, it's like, okay, you know, 1812 and then 1813 and then 1814, and that's, that, that's not the situation here. Luke is writing Acts with intent. These stories are strung together in this way connected to one another without the gaps emphasized for a reason. And that reason, of course, is that they are connected thematically. Why has God decided to give us this particular section of scripture in this particular, se- in this particular way is a question that we have to ask ourselves as we read. And you know, I know that the chapters don't really mean anything. They were added later, so chapter 21 isn't special. But nonetheless, if you read these three stories together, they do clearly seem to be connected. And so Paul obediently travels to Jerusalem and there meets with James. So this is probably Jesus' brother and the author of the epistle of the same name, not certain, doesn't matter tremendously for these purposes here. But he is one of the elders of the church in Jerusalem. So the church has been established in Jerusalem. It has officers, it has elders. These are known people. They know Paul, Paul knows them. And so after catching everyone up on what's happened, they dive into a troublesome issue. So there are Christians in Jerusalem Some are Jews and some are Gentiles. And they disagree about how Christians are to interpret the law of Moses. So there are some factions that believe that Christians should continue to follow all of the Mosaic laws. Some think that it's required. Some think that maybe you merely should as an act of obedience. Then there are other factions that want to emphasize their Christian freedom not to obey the law. We do not have to obey the law. And then there are still others that think that Christian freedom means that there's no need to follow any law of any kind. And so this is a common and long-standing debate in the church and a source of no little frustration and disunity. I mean, Paul references it in 1 Corinthians 7 in a debate about circumcision, Galatians 2, the whole book of Galatians. Paul and Peter have a disagreement over this issue. Uh, 1 Timothy 4, Paul warns about false teachers who are demanding adherence to the dietary laws. Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council meets to settle the issue and is clearly unsuccessful since here we are in Acts 21, still dealing with it. This is, this is a significant problem and it's been going on for a long time. And it's causing a great deal of disunity in the early church. So even though today we don't often encounter those who would have us obey Levitical laws, for example, um, it's still extremely common for us to have debates about what exactly is required of Christians and how much freedom we still have. So let me first settle the doctrinal question about who's right. Must Christians obey the Jewish law set out in the Old Testament in order to be saved? Galatians 2.16 is crystal clear. A man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 10.4, Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. 1 Corinthians 7.19, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. And in Acts 10, God himself speaks directly to Peter and tells him that he need not follow the dietary laws. So the doctrinal point is, is well settled to us having the privilege of reading all of the New Testament together as one unit and seeing all of the connections and understanding what's in it. Paul very clearly teaches this doctrine as he is writing his epistles to the very churches wherein this debate is raging. 
So even though we know that Paul clearly believes that it is not necessary to follow Jewish law to be a Christian, let's look at what he does. The elders say to Paul, what then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. So then what is this? Paul, who is the authority, the New Testament authority on not having to follow the Jewish law, undertakes upon himself to perform a purification ritual at his own expense and then recommends that Gentile Christians follow certain parts of the dietary code. Why? Does this not go against the very freedom from the law that Paul teaches in numerous places? And verse 24 contains a few words that then answer the question for us. Thus, all will know. Thus, all will know. So Paul, we see then, is not doing these things because he has to. He's doing them because he values Christian unity over his own Christian freedom. And he teaches exactly this. In Galatians 5.13, he says, You were called to freedom. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And in Romans 12, 18, he says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And in 1 Corinthians 8, he says, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So we see here that Paul, the champion of Christian freedom, the very authority of the passing away of the law, has chosen then to submit himself to unnecessary commands for the sake of the unity of the church. All things are lawful, he writes, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. So let me tell you, if you think that Paul talks a lot in his epistles and his teaching about freedom from the law, you're right. But let me tell you then about how much he talks about his concern for unity in the church. And look at his example in Acts then. Look at how far he's willing to go for the sake of these Jewish Christians who are wrong in the matter of doctrine. They have caused him no end of trouble. They are associated with people who hate him. Later on, they riot in the streets over him. And yet, some of them truly are believers. And because they are united to Paul in Christ, he is striving for unity. He submits himself to the consciences of others consciences that he knows to be incorrect for the sake of the church. Brothers and sisters, let me ask you then, how far are you willing to go to achieve unity within the church? I know that the easy answer is the doctrinal one. There are certain things that we must believe, and so we don't have any association with false churches. But let us then not draw those lines too sharply. Consider Paul's own example. When he writes to churches, he certainly has events such as these in mind. This is Paul's own example of his teachings on unity. He is ready and willing to go out of his way, even on issues that are doctrinally dubious, to accommodate other believers. And this applies especially within a, a local body, but I believe without as well. So what then are we willing to let loose 
for the sake of unity. Now, granted, we don't desire unity for its own sake. We're rather acknowledging the unity that we have in Christ if we are truly his people. And so unity can never come with those who are not the people of God. The gospel is the source of all of our unity. In any false gospel, there is no unity in that. So I'm not advocating a type of ecumenicalism. And given that we live in the kind of place that has so many churches to pick from, you know, I, I wouldn't even ask you to give up your denominational distinctives. In certain mission contexts where there's one church in an entire country, now we're going to have to set some of those things aside. But we're blessed today that there's a Presbyterian church and a Baptist church and a Lutheran church to pick from, and we can all be convinced of our own convictions. But so then what does it look like to have unity with other churches? Maybe it means joining their events, even if those events aren't really a priority for you. Maybe you support each other financially when it's needed, even if they do your budget, their budget differently than you would do yours. Or maybe you just encourage each other in your respective ministries to your neighbors. You know, your, your Lutheran neighbors, if they truly are believers of the gospel that we share, bless their efforts. I hope that they are immensely successful in whatever it is that they are doing for your shared neighbors. We have absolutely no need to quibble over matters of doctrine when the unity of the church is there to be attained. But more importantly, I think, is how you deal with people within your church that is right here. So how then are you bearing with one another for unity? Now, granted, I'm not your pastor, so I'm not saying anything with anything in particular in mind about you, uh, merely suggesting. But perhaps the sake of unity means that you don't drink alcohol for the sake of another, or maybe you don't talk a certain way, or maybe you even refrain from watching certain TV shows for the sake of a brother or sister. Maybe you even go so far as doing your Sunday morning music differently, if it matters that much to a fellow believer. What we really need to do, regardless of what particular issue you have in mind, is we need to reverse our default assumption about the way we handle unity today. You see, we're culturally conditioned to solve conflict by exit. I mean, our, our country was sort of founded on that principle, right? Like you, don't, you don't like your country? Well, I'm, I'm going to leave and start a new one. But isn't that true, right? If you don't like your job, you leave and find a new one. If you don't like your family, you get a divorce and you leave and you find a new one. And if you don't like your community, you move and you find a new one. And if someone comes to our church and they're a true believer and a brother and sister in Christ and they don't like something about it, with all the best intentions in our hearts, what's our default assumption? I hope you can find a church that's a good fit for but that's not the pattern of Scripture. There are times when that's certainly true. I mean, matters of baptism are going to be significant. There are issues that are going to make it really difficult to share a church. But how far are you willing to go to accommodate a true believer? So again, I don't know what exactly that means for each individual church, but let's have our first assumption be, is there any way we can accommodate this brother in Christ even if it comes at a cost to us. Because we see how far Paul was willing to go for the sake of unity in a church. So let us not let our Christian liberty come at the expense of our unity. And then this final vignette is probably the most challenging then, because it shows Paul submitting, not to God, not to his fellow believers, but to the world. And not just the world, but the government. The worst part of the world even as they were in the very act of mistreating him. 
We continue reading, then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another, and as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him! As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? So let's just make sure we're clear on what's happening here. These soldiers, they were the police. Rome didn't have a separate police force. The soldiers that were stationed in a city were the law-keeping force there. Paul was a Roman citizen, and he had all of the rights therein. He called upon none of them. The soldiers were more concerned with calming the riot than with justice, so they came and saw a man being beaten by a mob in the street, and they arrested the man being beaten, even though they had no idea what was going on by their own admission. Without any due process, Paul was unlawfully detained. He wasn't even going to be questioned until he asked for permission to plead his case. And then when given permission to plead his case, he does not defend himself on legal grounds to the police, but instead speaks to his assailants, giving a speech which, as you'll find out in the next chapter, has essentially no effect. So that's the situation we find ourselves in. Hopefully you'll remember that the Bible does tell us in several places to obey the governing authorities. Romans 13, 1 Peter 2. And we also hopefully know then that there are limits to such obedience. Daniel did not obey the king in idolatry. Peter and the apostles earlier in Acts 5 say that we must obey God rather than man in cases where they're irreconcilable. And we also know that Paul himself does use legal channels and an appeal to his own citizenship to obtain justice earlier in Acts 16. So there's clearly a balance to be struck here. And I would like to contend, though, that as with the question of how far to go for the sake of unity, that balance is tipped strongly towards submission. First, let's note that all of our direct spiritual commands about our relationship to the governing authorities are to obey. None of the authors of Scripture thought that it was necessary to command us not to obey in cases of sin, presumably because that should be self-evident, but it does seem like we need frequent reminders to obey authority, not to disobey authority. It's probably because we don't like it. So then what are the boundaries of this submission? Peter writes us in uh, 1 Peter 2 that we're to obey our earthly masters, even the unjust ones. We can go and look at Jesus himself, who commands us to turn the other cheek if someone reviles us. And he says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. That's a straightforward saying in and of itself, but there's actually more context that makes it even more clear. In that day, a Roman soldier traveling from one place to another along the road could grab any Jew off the side of the road and force him to carry his kit for a mile down the road. An unjust and capricious law, if ever there was one, and yet Jesus says, offer a second one. And why then do we submit in this way? What is to be gained by obeying unjust authorities of this world, even as they mistreat us? And the answers are in the very same texts. Earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, before Jesus tells us to turn the other cheek, he says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. 
for so they persecuted the prophets before you. And earlier in 1 Peter 2, Peter tells us, your conduct among the Gentiles is to be kept honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So you see, we submit to earthly authority even when unjust, even when capricious, and even when tyrannical. Yes, because it is commanded, but also for the sake of our witness to the gospel. And this cooperation, it's not a go-along, get-along type of cooperation. It doesn't mean that we're just staying out of the way, although we are called to live quiet and godly lives and live at peace. That's certainly true. But we're also told to be ready to make a defense. And Paul, even here in Acts 21, he makes a defense for himself after being unjustly attained, detained, of course, but a defense nonetheless. Submission is not intended to be blind or stupid. And after all, we know that we have freedoms from God himself that cannot be overcome by any other authority. Rather, submission is a willing laying down of our claims to freedom and our rights for the sake of the gospel. So in this light, we then realize that we must be prepared to give up rights. We must be prepared to appear weak. We must be prepared to, if we resist, to do it peacefully and submissively, willing to suffer all things for Christ's sake. Paul sums up his own attitude about this in 1 Corinthians 9. Uh, he, he says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus, our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are, are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and brothers of the Lord, as Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Paul here is specifically talking about whether or not apostles should be paid and how his funds are raised and support. There was some, some disagreement about these issues. But he's talking about it in the context of his Christian freedoms. Does he not have the right to eat or drink? Is he not an apostle? Has he not seen the Lord himself? And look what he says. He says, For though I am free from all, Though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being under the law myself, that I might win those under the law. To those outside, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. Do you think Paul has these very words that he's written in mind as this is happening to him? And so from these narratives in Acts 21, these three connected stories, backed up by further scriptural principles, we come to understand that submission the giving up willingly of one's own freedoms is a major Christian virtue. And it goes much further than we probably like to think. Paul himself, the very champion of Christian freedom, also teaches at the cost of that very freedom, submission, unity, peace. And when we look at his life's example, we find that although he is certainly aware of his freedom, he frequently chooses not to exercise it 
recognizing that exerting one's rights is not the Christian path to victory. And I understand that this is not what anyone, myself included, wants to hear. Being constrained, coerced, restrained, imposed upon, inconvenienced, and even subjugated goes against every human intuition and instinct and against every cultural statement that we hear. And yes, it even goes against our particular subculture. I know that the world says, be true to yourself and never let anyone pin you down. And I know that we reject that. But do we in this room and we in this small culture that we live in, do we not also love to say, liberty or death? It's a wonderful feeling to be unconstrained, to be free. But these are not the words of Christ, his apostles, or his church. A rallying cry, rather than, I am free, should be, blessed am I to be counted worthy to suffer disgrace for his name. But then what we find in scripture after finding that we must be submissive, that we must give up our freedoms, that we must leave what we could take behind, we find that in fact, to lose is to win. To die is gain by letting go, by giving in, by submitting to God and others, we join Jesus. Recall that in John 15, Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before. And, and it is, in fact, this submission and this suffering that is fundamental to the gospel. In Galatians 2, Paul teaches us, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, Jesus, Jesus is the ultimate subjugated, suffering servant. He submits himself over and over. And it is not in spite of that submission, but by it that he gains everything for himself and us. Scripture says he did not count equality with God something to be grasped. He being the only person that is entitled to grasp. Isaiah prophesied that, that he will be oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. In the garden, Jesus says to the Father, please let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He says to Peter, put your sword back in its place. All who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you not think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send 12 legions of angels? Pilate, at Jesus' mockery of a trial, he says, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But Jesus gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. And to praise God, that Jesus submitted to the will of the Father and to the evil of this world. For that is the very means of our salvation. And so we then are to follow Jesus as he submits and as he suffers. And yet when we do that, what do we find? Christ is now seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, Jesus has attained the highest victory through submission. He, who so much more than all of us has absolute freedom, allowed himself to be absolutely bound. 
bound in human flesh, bound to suffering, bound to submission, and yet through that, he attained the highest heights of freedom. And so as it turns out in the power calculations of God, resistance, fighting back, earthly power is loss. But to give up our freedom is victory. Weakness is strength. Loss is gain. And death itself even is life. And so in the end, the one who gives up his freedom, the one who submits, inherits the kingdom of God. And the Lord will surely justify you for your subjection. So my friends, if I were your pastor, I would know you better. And I would know your lives and your struggles and your neighbors and the conflicts that we have within and without. And I could perhaps give better instruction. But for now, I can give you suggestions, principles, and ideas. And I hope that you would take these and consider them closely. You who believe, we who are here, we are free. We are free from the law. We are free from the demands of others. You are owned by God, and no other has a higher claim on you, man or church or state. You are free to be bound. You are free to submit for the Lord's sake, for the church's sake, and for the sake of the gospel itself. Brothers and sisters, lay your freedoms down. I'll close by reading 1 Peter 2, 15 through 17, and 21 through 24. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. And then in verse 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your son who gave us the perfect example of submission to your will and even to the evils of this world, the very means by which we can receive salvation. Thank you that you always justify and judge rightly that every wrongdoing that we are subjected to will be made right in the end, whether judged and found covered by the blood of Jesus or judged and found worthy of condemnation. You will settle every injustice. And God, it is because of those things that we implore you, give us the strength to submit. Give us the strength to relinquish our rightly held freedoms out of obedience, out of unity, brotherly love, for the sake of the gospel and for the love of those who are lost in this world. Give us the strength to be bound. In the name of your son, Jesus, in whom we always pray. Amen.